Church, would you all remain standing for our scripture reading this evening? We're going to be reading from Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who was in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So what an exciting passage of scripture. <laughs> now, as y'all know, we've been uh, doing the Life Along the Way curriculum, and our sermon series has centered primarily on the book of Luke. Uh, I'm Jimmy Jeffcoat, by the way, just so you know. Okay. Uh, since I teach a Sunday school class, su Sunday class, not Sunday school, um, and sing in the choir, I've not been in the services too often, but sometimes, uh, sometime back, Chris uh, asked Neil and myself to come to his office for a few minutes, and he then told us that he wanted us to preach on a couple of occasions when he would be out of town. So he first told Neil that he was going to preach on a particular parable, you know, that, uh, that was in the Scripture, and that he wanted me to preach on Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. Well, I didn't bother to look up the passage. I just said, yeah, baby. <laughs> By the way, if you don't know where that comes from, uh, Google it. No, I, did, I didn't actually say that. I said, yes, sir, boss. I didn't say that either. Uh, I just said I'd be glad to help. And after the meeting, I went and I looked up the passage, and it was only then that I realized that he gave me a passage that is full of mystery and apocalyptic about the end times, undertones, or is it? You would, you'll understand that as I go. Uh, as I looked through numerous commentaries and Bible helps and things just to kind of get some sense of what people think, I found 
it to be true what I always found when I looked at Revelation, the Revelation of John. Everybody thinks they know something and they all are different. So we're going to have fun tonight <laughs> walking through a passage that is just chock full of hidden meanings, end of time language, and hopefully somewhere along the line you'll get a benefit from this. <laughs> if not, blame Chris. <laughs> okay, before we actually address the passage in question, I think it might be helpful to look at the flow of Luke's gospel for just a few minutes because before this intriguing teaching, he has kind of a process of, of work that he is doing. So I want to just quickly go through. We've been preaching on these things, and you'll catch some of the flow here. In chapter 14, Jesus dines on the Sabbath with a ruler of the Pharisees, and he gives a teaching for the sake of the other Pharisees on humility and the treatment of the less fortunate. Remember, he talked about a great banquet and told them that they ought to invite people that can't respond by giving a banquet back to them. As he moves on from the town, crowds are just following behind him. And at one point, he stops and he looks back at them and he basically says, you need to count the costs if you're going to follow after me because ultimately, it's going to cost you everything. And then he goes on. Chapter 15, we find him now speaking to a group of tax collectors and sinners. So on the one hand, he's with Pharisees. Chapter 15, he's with the tax collectors and sinners, and they've gathered around him, and for their sake, he gives them these wonderful examples of the value of a human soul. Here we have the parables of the 90 and 9, y'all remember that, the, the sheep, the lost coin, the lady hunting the, the coin, and we have the story of the prodigal son. Now, Chris gave us a very interesting interpretation of the possible motives of the prodigal son. But for me, the real focus is on the words, he came to his senses. In other words, he woke up to the reality of his situation and what he had done. So in humility, he returns expecting to live the life of one of the servants of his father. The joy of finding the lost sheep and coin in the two previous parables and the response of the father to the return of his lost son represent expressions of God's desire uh, to bring back people from their wayward journey into sin. I think it's, it's just summed up in the words of the father when he says, This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now at the same time, we can't forget that he also had a little, a little jab here for the Pharisees, I think. Even though this was a collection of tax collectors and sinners, he also sent a, a notice to the Pharisees by saying that that faithful son who was so angry about the fact that the, the prodigal son was welcomed back, he kind of represents the self-righteous people that think they're too good to welcome sinners to return and be uh, forgiven. In fact, the amazing nature, one of the great things about Scripture is there's so many layers of Scripture that you can see. Uh, in this particular set of Scriptures, I think you can take it and even break it down into a threefold interpretation where the lost sheep represents a person wandering off into the wilderness of sin. 
Or the lost coin could be the representation of all of us always being lost and Christ having to save us. Or the prodigal son representing those of us who from time to time willfully choose to walk away from Christ. And it takes a moment of awakening to bring us to our senses so that we come back to receive forgiveness. The kicker, of course, in the story is that self-righteous, overconfident religiosity of the elder son and how they need to learn how to love people who need Jesus. Bottom line. Chapter 16, Jesus makes the shift from the need to be found in the value of the human soul to our responsibilities as believers in the here and the now. He begins this chapter telling his disciples the parable of the shrewd steward, which is a difficult interpretive story, and the challenge that says we can't serve two masters, God and worldly things. We, gotta, we have to almost, uh, if I launch off into regular language, just y'all understand, we, we got to make a choice, you know what I'm saying? Then he ends the chapter with the story, y'all really don't interact very well with me. <laughs> Okay, I want y'all, if I say something, respond. Thanks. Now I forgot where it was. Uh, oh, he ends the chapter with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which is a challenge to both the Pharisees, who are outwardly religious but inwardly dead, and the wealthy who are living materialistic lives and who have their possessions as their gods. Well, chapter 17, our chapter, begins with Jesus talking about temptation and forgiveness, the concept of mustard seed faith, and the fact that absolute commitment is only the bottom line for starting the Christian life. And it's at this point we get to our passage. At this point, the Pharisees look to Jesus and they say to him, when's all this going to be resolved? In other words, When will God set all of these things right that are messed up and set up his kingdom and take authority over the world? Okay, now before we go any further, I got to do another offside thing, okay? Uh, This is a side tour. When you look in these kinds of passages, you kind of need to understand the nature of both prophetic literature and the way that Jesus lives himself, As you all know, we are a Trinitarian church. We believe that there's one God, but three persons in that being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We also believe that while on earth, Jesus shared, I know this is, I'm just doing a little stuff here, but uh, while on earth, Jesus shared two natures equally in himself. That is, he was both fully God in every sense of the word and fully human at the exact same time. Now, by the way, when we did the Nicene Creed, that long creed that we recite every week, that was written in 325 to clarify these things, to help them understand this is what we believe. We believe in the Trinity, and we believe that He is fully God and fully man. So, that kind of gives us the understanding of who Jesus is. That is why Jesus could eat and drink like us. And yet he could raise people from the dead at the same time. That's why he could talk as if he didn't know when the end of time would occur. 
and yet talk about the fact that he and the angels are coming back to get us. Let me put it another way. While on earth, Jesus constantly lived in between the then, the now, and the not yet. The then, the now, and the not yet. As the living Word of God, He sees all the connections between the past, His present mission, and His glorious return. At any given moment, He could speak from any of those frameworks. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. In the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, we're told about an encounter that Jesus has with the uh, group of Jews who believe in Him and also some Pharisees. As the conversation draws to a close, Jesus tells them that whoever keeps his word will never see death. They immediately respond, who do you think you are? Our father Abraham died and all the prophets died. Jesus then makes the comment, your father Abraham, now hear this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's in chapter 8, verse 56. They didn't miss what he was saying. You are not yet 50 years old, and you say that you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus spoke from the then and now. Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed existence prior to the existence of Abraham. And they didn't miss that. They picked up stones to throw at him at that point. That's why he appears, when he appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're confused because uh, Jesus, they hear Jesus has been resurrected, but they didn't expect him to get killed in the first place. And so when he hears this, he tries to make the connections for him. Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures. In our passage for today, Jesus is speaking both as a person living in the now, but also in the not yet. In other words, the man sitting in front of them is right there, the divine one, and yet he's also the son of man who's going to be coming at the end of time to set things right. The ultimate kingdom of God will come with him. So this as, as we go now into the passage, I want to look at some of these things, and, and I'll try to get out on time. Uh, I, I kind of got confused about how much time I had, so, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, I am a professor and a preacher. <laughs> it means I can talk. Well, the first thing to notice is the fact that it was once again a group of Pharisees who are asking the question, and they want to know when the kingdom of God is coming. Now, one thing that we know about Pharisees is that they literally did believe in an end of time. They believed in an afterlife, and so for them, this was an apocalyptic question. They wanted to know when is God going to come down and set things right? And if you're the Messiah, when are you going to do this? When's this going to happen? And Jesus offered an interesting response initially to their question. He says that the kingdom is not coming in the way that you would expect. He tells them that you'll not be able to spatially say it's over there or over here. You can't do it that way. He said, in fact, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, that's an interesting word, the midst of you. 
It's true that you can translate that same Greek word here by the word midst, or you can translate it within. That also works there. The kingdom of God is within you. In that case, he would be telling them that the kingdom of God is a principle within a person. This would actually fit as an interpretation if we take the position of Paul, for example, in Romans, that the kingdom of God is a spiritual principle. In the second chapter of Romans, he says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, the covenant relationship God has with the people of Israel, exemplified in the the act of circumcision, is not based on a physical action, actually. It's based on a heart principle. And so, therefore, whatever they're saying, he's trying to get across to them that ultimately the power of God exists in your presence. And so if you you take the other position where it says in the midst of you, um, you can look at it in another way. It could be within you, but he's also sitting there in front of them. He's in their very midst. In defense of this interpretation, and and really, by the way, many scholars hold to this position in the midst as the right translation. In defense of this interpretation, we need need only recall the way that Jesus defended himself against the Pharisees who claimed that when he cast out demons, that he was the prince of demons. And you know, Jesus had a great response to that. I mean, that was a great interaction between them. But Jesus said, that's kind of stupid. He didn't say it that way, but he meant it. Because if I fight against myself, I'm just destroying my own kingdom. That doesn't make any sense. And then he puts the kicker to him, and he says, but if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is in your midst, is right here among you. So that's what Jesus is telling these Pharisees. The kingdom of God is me. I'm here. Now, in verses 22 to 25, we see Jesus speak in both the here and the now and the not yet. Referring to his presence among them, he tells them that there will come a time when they will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. In other words, sometime in the future, they will wish that he was still around or that they were back in the days when he was still around, when he walked with them. Now, Jesus doesn't clarify what this means, but it's quite possible he was thinking about the fact that in about 30 years, Rome would come in and destroy Jerusalem Or he was thinking about the fact that they would be facing persecution eventually and it would get really, really untidy, unhealthy to be a Christian. And those days they would want to look back and say, boy, it was great when Jesus walked with us. So nice to to have those days back. But he assures them that the kingdom of God is coming and, you, and, he, and he says, so you don't get all turned around by people saying it's over here and over there, as I said before. He says to them, there will be no mistaking when I come back. He says, it'll be like lightning when a big flash hits. It's, it just makes the whole sky light up. Now, I can tell you, I have seen that this summer. 
You know, I, I bet you have as well. The fact is that there have been times where these storms came through and it hit and the sky just completely lit up. And he said, that's what it's going to be when I come. Everyone, everywhere, on all sides of the planet will know I'm here. Before all this can happen, though, he says, I've got to be the Savior of the world in the here and now. It is noteworthy that he is at this very moment on his final journey to Jerusalem to offer himself up as the suffering servant of God, the sin sacrifice for all human beings. As he put it in the, in the passage, verse 25, he, the Son of Man himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The point is here that uh, there can never be a consummation of history unless he gets the healing done first about our souls. There's never going to be a coming back to get his children, his sons and daughters, until he first gets them saved. And so he had to do the necessary thing there. Now, after this quick reflection on what lies immediately before him, Jesus now returns to the not yet, and he warns his listeners to be prepared for that final kingdom time that's coming. He does this, I think, with two different varieties of warnings. The first warning is that they should be aware that it'll happen when it's least expected. And he makes reference in verses 26 to 29 that have, to events that they, they certainly knew as Jewish people in terms of their history. Uh, for example, the stories of Noah and Lot. They all knew these stories. You all know these stories, right? And he said, that's what it's going to be like when, when I come. That's going to be the way that it is. That in those days, everybody's going to be going about their business. They're going to be really, really busy. They're going to go out to eat in the nice restaurants. And they're going to go and take walks. And they're going to be doing all these things and being very, very aware of their own lives. And then suddenly... It happens, just as it did to Sodom, just as it did in the days of Noah. At some point, Christ will break through history, and things will stop in the way it's been. Now, don't forget in Hebrew literature, anything repeated twice is something to be remembered as important. And here he tells two stories, Lot and Noah, to express the importance of understanding. It's coming. It's going to be here, and you better be prepared for it. His point is that you should be constantly aware of this fact, never letting it out of your mind. And he tells his hearers then and now, today, that we need to learn how to live with one eye open toward heaven and the other eye focused on what we're doing. Now, we've been again given a promise that he will one day return to gather up his followers. And as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 4, at that time we'll be taken up with him and reign with him forever. And even though that time is not yet, we still should live as if it's coming. In fact, uh, Paul later in the letter says that uh, it'll be so, later in this letter, Thessalonians, first letter, uh, he says it's going to be like a, woman going into labor pains. You don't know when it's going to happen, but when it comes, it's there. And he said it's going to be like some thief breaking into the house. Jesus even kind of references this when he talks about the ten virgins or young women that are waiting for the bridegroom to come. And he says five of them thought ahead and thought about having their uh, extra oil and the other ones didn't. And so when they, the, when the bridegroom 
groom did not come immediately. The ones that didn't have enough oil ran out and had to go get more. And while they went to get more, suddenly the bridegroom came and they all went in and had a good time. But those people didn't get to go. And he was trying to say, you better be ready. You need to be diligent in understanding these things. Peter takes the same stance in his second letter, third chapter, verse 9, when he says to his readers, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that, but that all should come to repentance. According to Peter, at least reading in this verse, the only thing that is holding Christ back is his desire to win as many souls as possible to his kingdom while he waits. What a challenge to us as believers. We should be making maximum effort to reach as many souls for Christ as possible, perhaps thereby ushering in the kingdom of eternity and his reign. Now, the second warning begins with kind of a veiled reference. And so, in this particular thing, he says in verse 31, on that day, don't go back into the house to get your goods. And if you're in the field, don't return to the house. Now, that that seems really mundane, and it seems like what he's really saying there is kind of, he's looking at the, the present tense just ahead, and he's also looking at the future in in the end. He's talking about the fact that in 30 years or so, the Romans uh, in in 70 are going to destroy everything in Jerusalem and kick the Jews out, and it's going to be a terrible, terrible time. And so it certainly fits. Don't go back into the house. Get out. But the idea that is associated with this is he says, in that day when the Son of Man returns. So there is kind of both the both and. It's also what's going to happen with Rome, but it's also Christ's going to come back. And therefore, you better have it all together. Don't go back. Stay forward with him. In fact, the second warning really just has three words. Remember Lot's wife. So why is that important as a warning to consciously think about Lot's wife? Well, you remember the story, Lot's wife made it all the way out of Sodom with her children and uh, with Lot. Got all the way to the other side where they were safe. And what did she do? Good, y'all answered. That's excellent. Nice job. She looked back. But why did she look back? She looked back because she longed for what she had before. She was connected still to what she had in the past. In other words, she was attached to her worldly goods in life. She had made it all the way to safety, but she had let her old life pull her back. In this section of the passage, Jesus is clearly warning believers to not be possessed by their possessions, to make sure that your treasures are in heaven, that we would rather, and and honestly, it's almost as if to say, if you would rather live here than go to be with me, you don't really fit the kingdom of heaven. Now, I thought I'd share a real quick one here. <clears throat> Actually, I can't. I'm running out of time. <laughs> but let me just say, when I was single, a lot of 30 years, uh, I used to pray, God, come back. Just wait till I get married and have children. You know, I think sometimes that's the way we are. We're really excited about Jesus coming, but we do have some things we want to get done first. Not a good attitude. 
You know, we have to live with the understanding that Christ is coming. We have to live with the understanding that the place he will be and where we will go is better than anything we can ever imagine or think about. And so we need to be yearning for the day when we get to be the true people we really are and to be in the place that we really belong. Okay, so I'm just pushing through here. All right. Uh, he finishes that with verse 33 where he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will gain it. My point to you this, this evening is this. He is trying to get across to us, Jesus is, trying to get across to us that the only life that truly makes a difference is a life that is totally sold out, totally given over, a slave of righteousness, as Paul puts it. To further emphasize this point, he talks about the, and and really like an advertisement for the Left Behind series, he talks about that this is going to be so realistic that two people will be working side by side, one will be taken and the other stay. Two people will be sleeping in bed, one taken and the other stay. It's going to happen so quickly, the end of time is coming, and the separating is going to take place, like the sheep and the goats, or the bad fish and the good fish. At the end, Christ will bring us home, and the other side, those who don't choose him, will be left to really face the piper, as they say. So his message is simple. Don't get caught unprepared. Always be ready for the return of the Lord. He is coming. The early church used to use this word, Maranatha. And it can be translated, our Lord comes. Just a reminder, he's coming. He's going to be here. We need to be ready. Well, the last section is about buzzards and a corpse. And and essentially, he's just saying, when it all happens, it's going down. It's going to be a bad deal. So don't go any deeper on that one. Trust me. All right, so my final points. uh, (laughs) I'm really barely over, so I'm doing pretty good. Okay, okay. Uh, So I have three final points. First, well, it's not like they're not long. They're just points. Okay. First, and they're good ones too, so keep notes. First, We should not be running around and looking for this or that spiritual thrill or the latest spiritual fad. The kingdom of God is in our midst in the person of Jesus who lives where? In us through his spirit. We are the temple of God. You want to grow in that relationship with him here. You want to become closer to him here. Secondly, We can never forget that the purchase of our, and this is just a bottom line point. We can never forget that the purchase of our very lives came when Jesus in the here and now gave himself up for us. It was his willingness to suffer for our sins that made it possible for these things to be saved from judgment, to be forgiven our sins, to be enabled to overcome temptation and sin itself. And to have life forever with Christ Jesus eternally. All of that was done by his work on the cross. And his work in the tomb. Third, it is of critical importance that every one of us lives our daily lives with an eye towards heaven. In other words, live for the not yet. The coming of the Son of Man will happen all at once like 
lightning illuminating the sky, but it will happen only when he chooses. And it cannot be predicted. I'm sorry if you trust somebody is predicting it wrong. Okay, not going to happen. All of us, however, need to be responsible with the way we live right now. To be ready. So that when he does come, we'll hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So that returns me to the title of my message. It is better to be ready than to be caught unaware. Amen.